This podcast was produced by members of the Pinsker Centre Policy Fellowship 2020-2021. The Pinsker Centre is a think tank which focuses on global foreign policy while promoting freedom of speech and fighting intolerance. If you'd be interested in learning more about our work, follow the Pinsker Centre on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Applications for the 2021-2022 Fellowship Programme will open in the spring. Hello and welcome to the Pinsker Podcast with me, Tom Klaus Pritchard, Eli Bellilty and Peter Byrne. Today we'll be discussing the threats to Israel. I think you'll be hard pushed to find a single day in the history of Israel since it became independent in 1948 when some form of violence or war has not been waged against her, whether this be from Hezbollah and Hamas or the Islamic Republic of Iran and its allies. So we'll be guiding you through this topic today. Over to you, Peter. Thank you, Tom. In recent years, we've heard some hot rhetoric come out of Iran directed towards Israel. Iran has described Israel as being a cancerous terror. It has said that all it needs is 24 hours and an excuse to eradicate Israel. And a senior military leader recently said that eradicating Israel off the map is not negotiable. So this hot rhetoric, coupled with quite a serious weapons program designed to procure nuclear missiles, poses quite a real threat indeed. In recent years, the Russian government have strengthened Iran's position by supplying it with surface-to-air missiles designed to deter aerial attack from Israel or from its allies. Iran's nuclear program, of course, has been ramped up recently with its deviation from the JCPOA designed to curtail its nuclear ambition. Iran has expanded or at least further developed its nuclear program, most recently at its main facility in Natanz. Question has to be asked, therefore, what for the future of Iran's nuclear program? What will we see from the incoming Biden administration? Will it seek to return the US to the JCPOA and seek to disarm Iran through peaceful means? Will more direct action be required to prevent further nuclear proliferation? Time will tell. We'll have to wait and see how that develops. But the threat posed by Iran and the threats posed by Hamas and Hezbollah provide quite a dangerous environment in which Israel exists. Over to Tom to talk further about Hezbollah. Thank you, Peter. That was very insightful and very informative. Thanks. So Hezbollah was formed essentially in the aftermath of the Iranian revolution in 1979 and means the party of God. And they're a Shiite organization, extremely violent, operating out of Lebanon. And getting back to Peter's point about Iran, they have hugely, hugely close links to Iran, whether that come from funding, training. The Islamic Revolutionary Guard gave the very early Hezbollah operatives training in in military combat and so forth. I found a quote from the uh, Secretary General of Hezbollah in 2016, Hassan Nasrallah. Quote, we are open about the fact that Hezbollah's budget, its income, its expenses, everything it eats and drinks, its weapons and rockets, come from the Islamic Republic of Iran. So Iran is the weapon here, and they do need to be stopped. And that's why I I think really what should be done is not a return to the Iran nuclear deal, but returning to before that with the huge, huge and successful economic sanctions. Now, Hezbollah today 
apart from its close links to Iran, has been described as a state within a state in Lebanon, as it has seats in the Lebanese parliament and controls various agencies of the Lebanese government. And they've used this power to wage war against the state of Israel. That's, there are over 100,000 rockets in a mixture of the Lebanese-Israeli border and in Syria as well, pointing at Israel. So that coupled with the threats that Israel faced from Hamas, obviously make for the statement I made earlier in which you'd be hard pressed to find a single day in Israeli history when some kind of act of violence has not been waged upon it. Over to you, Eli. Thank you, Thomas. Now, aside from the very real threat posed by Hezbollah from the east, there is one particular terrorist organization that poses a threat to Israel from the west, from the Gaza Strip itself. Whilst Fatah and the Palestinian Authority control the West Bank, it is Hamas who, since the early 2000s, have, have taken control over the Gaza Strip. Unlike Hezbollah, which is a which is a Shiite organization that receives most of its funding from uh, from Iran, Hamas is a is a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, a Sunni pan-Islamist group based in Egypt that was the first of its kind to advocate a worldwide cal- um, a worldwide caliphate. Part of that includes the subjugation of what they call the disbelievers or infidels, or in this case, they see the existence of a Jewish nation as an affront, not as a nationalist side of Palestinian suffering, but a suffering of all Muslims to have what is what they call to be Muslim holy lands under siege. Despite claims by Western liberals and apologists that Hamas is largely a not, um, not an anti-Semitic or a or a largely anti-Israel group. Their own covenant contradicts it. A number of articles in their infamous 1988 charter, which has largely not been renounced or, or supposedly updated, it still remains on their website and still clearly remains part of their program. The preamble to the 1988 charter states that Israel will exist and continue to exist until Islam invalidates it, just as it invalidates before. Additionally to that, they take their religious justification from a hadith where the Prophet Muhammad is supposedly said that the Day of Judgment will not come until the Muslims fight the Jews um, and kill them. This particular line and language shows that their focus isn't so much an economic, social or more political one that perhaps the PLO or PFLP have pushed, but it's something that they will continue to push until they believe that Day of Judgment will arrive. And in practice, that means that surrender to them has never been an option. And whilst some organisations such as the PLO and PFLP have, have agreed to negotiate in the past, Hamas has constantly refused any negotiations or even to recognise the state of Israel, meaning that the only option that seems to happen is to even make conditions so unfavourable for them that they are pushed out of power or to effectively dismantle the group. Whilst they started out as having a glorious armoury of a pistol and a number of Molotov cocktails, it has evolved from suicide bombings, rocket attacks, which are the, the, the most common use of terror and have caused great distress, harm and suffering on many, many people in, um, in the south of Israel. But it's not usually common for me to receive calls from family members who have said that they've had to hide in their basements or, to, or take cover because of missile attacks. In fact, the extent of their supposedly harmless and futile resistance uh, resulted in, I'm calling for my sister saying that, uh, Within a few minutes of her leaving a playground, a rocket had struck the, uh, the, uh, the very place, and if they were there a few minutes before, it, it would have killed them. 
Hamas draws 80% of its funding from its last estimated $70 million budget from foreign aid. This is because they operate on two fronts. They own what is supposed to be a legitimate government that hasn't held an election from in a few years and have a very, very good tendency of killing off all their opposition when they can have it. But they also operate a separate military wing known as the Izzardin al-Qassam Brigades, which take the majority of funding and operate everything from, um, from security matters, law enforcement and terrorist attacks. Whilst it's not so much an immediate threat that they're going to over, um, overrun Israel and take over Jerusalem anytime soon, they still pose a very, very real threat to um, Israeli civilians. And throughout their very slick propaganda machine, it has inspired everything from lone wolf attacks with, with cars, knives, bombs, and, and so on and so forth. Overall, whilst they're well contained within Gaza, the threat is very real. Tom, you said that Hezbollah receives quite a large part of its budget from the Iranian government. Do you think that tackling Hezbollah successfully would depend on tackling Iran as well? Oh, that's a very interesting question. I think that if you tackled Iran through increased amounts of economic sanctions, that means tariffs, embargoes on weapons and the materials needed to make weapons, uh, and tariffs on a lot of other goods and services, that would drastically reduce its ability to fund terrorist organisations around the world, including Hezbollah. Now, let's say that those economic sanctions have worked and Iran is now very, very poor and cannot fund these various organisations. Now, a lot of Hezbollah's money would have gone as a result of that. However, let's not forget that they are still, as uh, it's often been referred to them, as a state within a state in the state of Lebanon. And they are a political party in Lebanon, which has led some scholars who, you know, uh, are on the left and, and sort of fight their corner a little bit, have said that essentially that Hezbollah, as a result of being a political party in Lebanon, have left their terrorist past behind. And that's, of course, complete balderdash. They haven't. They are a political party and they're a terrorist organisation. There's no question of that. But as a result of that, as a result of them being a political party, having seats in the Lebanese parliament, controlling various agencies, as a result of that, they have money and they have establishment in Lebanon. They have a lot of money and a lot of supplies coming from Iran, but they also can raise a lot of money in Lebanon itself. So it's a very complicated situation, Peter, because if you take out Iran, either economically or militarily, but the threat of Iran has gone either way, Hezbollah, although its resources will be reduced and its ability to wage war will be reduced as a result of the reduction of resources, it still hasn't gone away. So if you are to get rid of the, the threat of Hezbollah, really, you need to tackle both problems. And how likely do you think it is that military action will be needed to do that? Do, do you feel that economic sanctions alone could be successful? Or do you feel that something of a more direct and decisive military intervention would be needed? And part of the reason why I ask that, Tom, is that uh, we know that Russia provides uh, a level of funding to Iran. So if we sanction Iran and cut off their ability to trade with us and to trade with the West and, you know, NATO countries, these sorts of countries, uh, if they're still engaged with Russia, 
how effective do you think that will realistically be? Well, let's not forget Russia, although it's very powerful militarily in terms of it having a large um, amount of nuclear weapons and so forth, although it has a slight geography problem with its navy, but forgetting that for a minute, it has a lot of nuclear weapons. It is a very powerful nation militarily. Economically, not so much. Back in the days of the Soviet Union, now I'm not saying that communist economics works, it doesn't. But you at least had then, Russia had a very, very, had a huge sphere of influence, whether that was over countries in Northwest Asia, whether it was in Eastern Europe, it even had footholds in Central America and Africa. It had a big, big sphere of influence with which to trade. And if Iran back then sort of approached, okay, you know, socialist economics doesn't work, but at least there's a very big block of countries with which to trade with. That isn't the case anymore. Russia is not particularly powerful economically. It is compared to a lot of other nations, but not compared to the likes of America, the United Kingdom, the EU, and all the sort of big Western superpowers, many nations in the Commonwealth. So in that respect, if the United States, of which I think it would be very unlikely that a Biden administration would renew the sanctions, because I think it's very likely that they will go back to the Iran deal that was negotiated by Obama, which is the worst deal in history. It's worse than the Munich Agreement. But if Biden went back to that, that doesn't bring in any or barely any economic sanctions. But let's just say Biden goes down the line of economic sanctions, hypothetically, and got the United Kingdom on board, which he probably would, the EU on board, which is questionable. Having worked in the European Parliament, the amount of anti-American sentiment there is immense. So I'll be sceptical of that, but let's say they do. The Commonwealth of Nations and a couple of others, that would very, very much weaken Iran in terms of its network to trade with. And that would reduce its ability to fund terrorist organisations around the world. Let's not forget the embargoes on weapons and the materials needed to make weapons. That would also reduce its ability to threaten violence to Israel and other nations too. So, yes, I think there there is a way that economic strangulation of Iran could work. Peter, I've, I've got a question for you. One of the greatest threats that comes from Iran now isn't, isn't necessarily the funding or even the IRGC's influence. During um, a address to the um, to UN, Netanyahu stated that there, there was a certain point of no return when it comes to Iran's acquisition of a nuclear weapon. Now that, that the Trump administration is out, w- w- whatever we think about his policies domestically, one of the positive points he had internationally was um, to put pressure on um, on Iran and other Muslim states about their, their anti-Israel uh, sentiment, and especially in regards to Iran's dubious claims that they're trying to get nuclear materials for people's uh, peaceful purposes. How far away do you think this point of no return is now we have a very, very complacent and rather naive president in the White House? Well, first of all, it will be interesting to see how Biden responds to the threat posed by Iran. I think we have to bear in mind the military strength that Iran has got. Often comparisons are made between Iran and and Iraq, although I think those comparisons are unwise because Iraq had a somewhat underdeveloped and rather poorly funded military compared to Iran, but with 
the installation of Russian surface-to-air missiles as well as other sort of military apparatus uh, into Iran. It, it makes it rather difficult to see how military action could work in Iran without the need for quite a sizable ground force as well, which would also come with sizable military losses in terms of uh, soldier fatalities. In terms of how far we are away from sort of kinetic military strike needing to occur to disarm Iran, I think we have to decide how likely it is that Iran will procure or produce a deployable nuclear missile. And then we have to decide what it wants to do with it. There's been a lot of hot rhetoric coming out of Iran, as I said. I think it would depend on how successful the Biden administration is in terms of convincing Iran to to stop its nuclear program or certainly to downsize it substantially. I think we're going to have to see positive action uh, on the side of Iran, not just token gestures, but tangible, positive steps in the right direction that would ultimately lead to nuclear disarmament. You know, Iran claims that its enrichment of uranium is for civilian purposes. I think that any sensible commentator or any sensible academic would look at that with a level of distrust. I think that Iran's rhetoric and Iran's actions in recent years have certainly to me demonstrated their desire to use their uh, nuclear program for, for military purposes. So I think we have to decide what do we want to achieve and what are we prepared to lose to achieve it? If if we're talking about a full-scale invasion to uh, change the regime in Iran and then disarm it, we also have to consider the humanitarian costs of doing that because in recent times, whenever military action has been taken uh, with the goal of changing a regime, what's happened is the country's imploded and millions of people have suffered terribly. We also have to consider that. I think for me, if if we get to a point in Iran where their nuclear ambitions become obviously threatening towards Israel and they are somewhat immediately seeking to, as was said by uh, quite a senior Iranian official, to erase Israel off the face of the map, then we have to seriously we have to seriously question the probability of successfully disarming Iran through sanctions alone. It will all depend on Biden's view of Iran and whether he thinks that nuclear disarmament can take place peacefully. I would hope that it could, because, of course, nobody wants to see a full-scale war, another full-scale war in the Middle East. Uh, It's not good for the forces that invade. It's not good for the people that live in the country. But also, it's not good for anybody if an outlaw regime acquires nuclear missiles. It's just not something that we want to see. This is a question for probably both Peter and Eli. Getting away from discussions over war in the military sense as well as increasing sanctions on the Iranian regime and, and trying to tackle it economically. Where do you stand on, or what do you think about, in terms of the sort of war of information, in a way? I'm, talking, I'm sure you've heard of Al Jazeera News, or um, its rebrand, AJ+, Plus, which is predominantly funded by Qatar and its ally Iran, and it plays in Western countries on the internet and so forth in an attempt to undermine the West to young people, as well as spreading the most ludicrous lies about Israel. What do you two think about that? Now, one of the issues that I've seen with a lot of these disinformation outlets that are never ever covered within the debate of fake news is the effect it has on one of the major parts that is needed to win a war, being the hearts and minds. A lot of what is said by these propaganda outlets reverbs about what the leaders of Hamas have said about Israel, and that reverbs into everything from politics, the news and public discourse about how how we handle these very, very sensitive issues that do cost lives. If you were to put together a compilation of perhaps Channel 4 News, 
BBC News, Jeremy Corbyn, AJ Plus, and, and Khaled Mashallah Ismail Hania about the many, many ills that Israel has done, whether it's sending Zionist spy dolphins, poisoning the waters, murdering children en masse, or for some reason, this, is, this comes up a lot, sending tanks in to dispel riots. These will be completely identical. As we've all agreed, you can't combat these organisations if you don't cut off their supplies. There's not too much good about constantly fighting um, Hezbollah if, if all their new weapons, training and um, artillery is paid for. It's in the same way that a lot of what we've been doing against Hamas has been futile enough because every time we do that, they get a new batch of foreign aid or, or building materials are sent in and that can be used to build terror tunnels. Fertilizer for gardening is used to synthesize explosives for their rockets. And money is, of course, used to pay fighters' wages and also to pay the many, many illegal weapons imports from said tunnels from Sudan and Egypt. But a lot of that comes from the very bad set of information that is brought out. And without correcting that bad information at the source, it's almost as if we're fighting somewhat of a losing battle. I would echo uh, Eli's remarks there. I think that regarding the messages that are put out there by Al Jazeera and similar news networks, we have to be very careful, I think, when it comes to curtailing free speech. Al Jazeera, just like any other news network or any other private business in the world for that matter, has, in my view, got the right to say what it wants to say, as long as what it's saying isn't inciting violence or terror or any sort of similar negative actions like that. I think that what's important is is that we get the right messages out. I think that it's essential that we combat the wrong messages, which which we hear all too often with the right messages. I think what Eli said about some of the news that we hear uh, here in the UK uh, being biased, I think that's wrong. What we do about that is, is a different matter, especially when these uh, the news organisation that you mentioned, Al Jazeera, isn't one that's based here. It's based somewhere else that operates under different laws. What we can do about the rhetoric that they spout is something I don't know too much about. I think that we have to just make sure that we're putting the right pressure on these news organizations to not steer too far of the truth. And if they do incite violence, terrorism, attacks on people, then we have to look at what sort of action can be taken to stop them from doing that. With regards to tackling organizations like Al Jazeera, who do put out some pretty poor messages, what what can be done? Because when we're talking about a country like Iran or groups like uh, Hamas or Hezbollah, you can talk about economic sanctions. You can talk about, hopefully it doesn't come to this, you can talk about military action. You've got a news organization, which is essentially spouting this sometimes ridiculous propaganda. They're not a state actor. It's It's quite difficult for me to think what can be done, because if somebody else in the world somewhere else said, you know, we don't like what, the BBC or Sky News or a news network in the UK is saying, you're quite limited as to what you can do about that. I remember when there was talk about banning Russia Today in, uh, in this country because we weren't happy with what Russia Today was saying. And I remember saying to somebody that if we ban Russia Today, the Russians will probably ban the BBC. And I said, well, if Russia bans the BBC, then we should ban the BBC. <laughs> um, but I, I see with, with, with uh, news outlets like Al Jazeera, we can ban Al Jazeera. I'm sure that we could do that. Mm. Whether we should without uh, impinging on the right to free speech, I, I, I don't know how you could square that circle. Yeah, I think there is one way around it. I think organisations like Al Jazeera and Russia Today can accurately be described as some parts of state actors. They operate within those states by those states and um, useful tools for those states to propagate their message and an ideology. One of the biggest regulations Ofcom has in this country is there can't be any biased news sources or, um, or for it to be used as outlets for propaganda. 
I really think what needs to be done is news networks like these have to be evaluated, audited and investigated to ensure that they're not using an essential service to um, to inform people of what is going on, to not bend and twist it to spread a message. And it does come down to the fact that I think too often we do give a lot of these new, these news networks a free pass when it comes to, to writing a bad story, one without information. Actually, on the subjects of Al Jazeera, during some points of the, um, of the Iraq war, especially with Hamas, they've often done these, these news clippets where they have a close-to-close interview with fighters from certain organisations, where they effectively give them a free microphone to say, you know, the glorious martyrs are undertaken these four operations. They're making it sound like they're fighting a crusade or doing charity work, when what they're really doing is, um, is, um, is causing undue harm to innocent civilians. And... It's really news stories like this are a certain affront to freedom of speech because it's because you, as far as I'm concerned, you can say whatever you want to say. Nobody, nobody is there taping your mouth, but you're not free from anyone's reaction from it. And, and it doesn't mean you're entitled to, um, to any platform to us. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I think when it comes to, to free speech, I've, I've often been a believer that uh, all it boils down to is that uh, you have the right to say what you want to say and I have the right to be offended or not be offended. I think you made a good point there about Ofcom and the uh, standards by which we expect British media to operate, which is that they have to be objective. And if we determine that a news outlet is objectively being not objective, then I think we can uh, look to take uh, them to the court in in the UK and say, you know, look, we're not happy with the uh, standards by which this particular company is operating. I would see that as being a, a reasonable recourse if we decide that the message that's been put out by such organisations is bad, objectively bad, that it's not based in fact, it's based in a desire to harm, then I think that's different. Unless we can sort of determine conclusively that uh, that the intention is to harm, then I think we have to be very careful when it comes to uh, regulating what people and companies are allowed to say. I think you're right. I think perhaps Twitter could take a leaf out of your book in their banning of, of the now former president of the United States. What Eli was was talking about, and uh, and I think what Tom mentioned as well, I completely believe this, that every war that's ever been fought, every conflict, every disagreement, you know, hearts and minds is not, not to quote the old phrase from the Vietnam era, but the hearts and minds are, are very important. And if the hearts and minds are being fed negative information, then uh, it's going to make any confrontation difficult to resolve because of course i think everybody here would hope that the the threats posed by iran can be resolved peacefully nobody wants to see a war but i think it's important to bear in mind that unless we can get everybody on the same page listening to the same not the same information but information which adheres to the same standards and they're all played by the same rule book it's going to be very difficult i think to cool these tensions if people are being fed or in some cases possibly even indoctrinated with pretty shoddy information at best well what reverbs in civilian life reverbs into, into military life we saw, we've seen it with the iraq war afghanistan where all of a lot of the negative press reverbs into military policy because they wanted to stay face and keep a good reputation they decided to end the wars too um too early and um, which has led to nice consequences however i've got to disagree we don't want war iran certainly does and they, they, they seem to be gearing towards it so so whilst not matching information is useful the issue is is that the very real military and security for armed security threats have to be evaluated just as much.